today's interview is, well, a bit different. This isn't any guess. Actually, it's a pretty personal story because today we're talking to the co-founder of my family, my grandmother, Dorothy Donner. This is my dad's mom, but she's not just my dad's mom. In fact, my dad is one of 10 kids, a freaking handful to deal with. She's raised 10 kids, has lived through the Great Depression, numerous wars, and a global pandemic. She definitely knows a thing or two about life's challenges. And as we progress through her story and run into some of our own challenges along the way, I'm reminded of the importance of capturing these stories and listening while we still can. And that understanding your family's history helps you better understand yourself. So this all took place because my grandparents were visiting my family home. So after finishing up some scrambled eggs, Grandma Donner hopped into a quiet room to walk me through some of the stories that made her who she is today. It starts with just taking that leap. You have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. doesn't matter how badly you got beaten Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go with your gut. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. Can you tell me what you had for breakfast this morning? Um, scrambled eggs with some chopped up like bacon in it and a slice of toast with some jam on it. What's your opinion on scrambled versus toast? No, you have to have different ways to treat an egg. You can't just do it one way or another way. I feel like the trick is to don't speak for the egg, let the egg speak to you. There you go. <laughs> yes, I like that. Yes. So the podcast is generally about entrepreneurs, right? But what it is more for me is it's about vulnerability. Mm. And why I find entrepreneurs interesting generally is because they're the modern day gladiators, right? They're like these people where they're trying to create something from nothing. And I think in a lot of ways, that's how like I viewed my parents or how most people view their parents. And it's like, right. there's this period of time where you're like, you can do no wrong, you know everything. And so I think there's a lot of parallels to how one starts a family and how one starts like a business. Yes. Like I, I also want to know more about like our history. I, I think it's also just like something that a lot of people can relate to. Let's go back to where it all started. Where did, where did you grow up? Well, I was born December 1st of 1932, which they tell me was during the Depression. And I grew up in Illinois. I know this from the Polish happy birthday songs, probably most, but uh, we come from yeah. Polish yes, ancestry. Definitely. Uh, was that made known to you early on? Like, yes. Uh, how? My mother was born in Poland, but she spoke fluent English. She came over from Poland, somewhere in Poland, when she was about four years old. My mother's Mother, however, my busha, which means grandma in Polish, only spoke Polish. But she and my grandfather came over from, like I said, from Poland at about 1914. And if you think of that date, you know, something was going on in Europe, specifically in, in Eastern Europe. 
Germany wanted a chunk of Poland, so did Russia. I think my grandparents kind of ran away, and I don't know how they did that. They were probably in their 20s. You know, they left everything, if you think about it now, knowing that they would most likely never see their family again. These were the days of Ellis Island, right? Uh, yes. Yes. So they had to go through that. They had to go hole. through Ellis Island, yes. And that's in genealogy. That is where you find a lot about your ancestors. A host of immigrants flock in, one million a year. They come in teeming steerages from Italy, Russia, Central Europe, hoping for a better life and dreaming that America's streets are paved with gold. Their names they have to put down, how old they were, what, who was in the family, and where they came from. I don't know anything about my grandfather except what I've just told you, because he died fairly young. His name was Bruno Kozieminski, and my mother, my grandmother's name was Mariana Kozieminska. Now in Polish, if you have a last name, if you put an A on the end, that's feminine. So you don't say Mrs. Kozieminska, you just say Kozieminska, that means Mrs. Kozieminski. And the man, on the end of his name, you have an I, so you just say, hey, Kozieminski, how are you? You know, okay, fine, I know that. As you can see through this mini crash course on the Polish language, my grandmother's childhood was infused with Polish culture. Turns out this was pretty common among Polish immigrants at the turn of the 20th century. In the early 1900s, a lot of Poles were fighting for an independent republic before leaving their country. But revolutionary efforts were crushed by the Austrian, Russian, and Prussian empires. Polish immigrants, like my grandmother's grandmother, sought to preserve their heritage in America as they left behind the unemployment, famine, and repression at home. Flocking to industrial cities like Chicago, Polish immigrants built communities where they could celebrate their culture and discover new opportunities for success. For my grandmother's family, that opportunity lay in an empty city building. They got on the train, like I said, and headed for Chicago because they had relatives there already. That's what immigrant people do. They set up somebody to go first or somebody's brave enough to do it. And then they write letters back to the families and say, hey, this is good. We checked it out. And they were able to buy a building, a very nice building in Chicago. Now think about buying something for a yourself. Building? A building, yes. Not like an apartment, like a real what whole they had, building. It was a business. It was a bakery. My grandmother had hired ladies to sell the products, you know. And because so many Polish people lived there, she could get by with just speaking Polish. That was fine. Everybody knew everybody. And in the there back was a big of it, Polish community yes, in New York because oh yes. a lot of people had a similar idea with the war impending to move out oh there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, it wasn't just that. I mean, America was it. In Chicago at the time, I've been talking to friends about this now, it was very segregated. You had Polak town, but if you wanted a good Chinese meal, you went to Chinatown. Everybody had their group because that was what they, as I said, somebody went first, checked it out and said, yeah, come on over, you know. And so they formed communities. So when your mom was born in Poland and they moved into this bakery, yes. did, did she ever share memories of what that was like growing up in that atmosphere? She didn't have to because we just went there all the time. And we saw what my grandma was doing. I think by that time, my grandfather had already died. And like I said, I can't remember exactly. But I saw this short, chubby, hardworking lady running in the band. She strong-fisted. I mean, you do it my way or else, you're out. 
how she ran a business. I mean, she had to buy flour and sugar and lard and eggs and everything. So she was from, running the entire business? She was running it. Wow. Yeah, she was the boss. She had to hire people. She had to tell the guys that were baking in the, in the bottom part what to do and how to do and stuff like that. Polish lady. Like I said, she had the, the bakery and then she bought a tavern business. But she ran, ran the tavern business too. And God forbid anybody got drunk and tried to sass her. Wouldn't happen. So when you saw this short, tough woman barking orders, was that inspirational or were you scared? Neither. I mean, huh. this is just Pusha. That's just how she was. And that's it. Okay. I think it's incredible because it's like, I'm not going to give up this business when my husband dies. I'm not going to get even a job. I, I'm going to continue this legacy myself and I'm going to do it with that iron fist. Not only was Busha doing it with an iron fist, but she was also doing it in direct opposition to the stigma and inequity pitted against female entrepreneurs at the time. Laws that made it difficult for women to have rights to their own businesses alongside sexist discrimination made it almost impossible for women to acquire bank loans. So it makes sense that my grandma's Busha had such a stern presence. If she wanted to actualize her dream and rise up in society, she couldn't wait for someone else to do it. And it's easy to hear how the same sense of grit stuck with my grandmother. But Busha wasn't her only role model for resilience and entrepreneurship. It seems like Polish ancestry was very much emphasized on your mother's side. Was it not so much on your father's side? I would say that's probably correct. When you came here, you didn't want to be Polish. You wanted to be American. To come here and be able to own your own property and be somebody and go to school and you could rise to wherever you wanted to. You could own a mansion. You could be whoever. You could be president of the United States. Not in Poland. <laughs> no way. So I don't know Grandma Canabe's background, except her name was Harriet, and she married Edward Joseph Canabe. But my father's name was Edward Joseph Canabe Jr. Now, the first Edward Joseph Canabe made, I guess, a bunch of money because they had a big house. He was the one that was the machinist and inventor. So you know what he invented? I have an inkling, but i like for you to tell me. <laughs> the machine that makes egg cartons. The reason he found this was Grandma Harriet would send the kids to go and get some eggs, and they come from the store and in a basket or a bag, and half of them would be broken. I was like, this is ridiculous. we got to fix this. How am I going to do? His idea and his invention was to make the machine that makes egg cartons. Now you think worldwide, how many people use egg cartons? Billions. Just from your great-grandpa. Well, great-grandpa, whatever you, it was. Well, thank you, thank <laughs> you. Yes, absolutely. So you talk about what you got. So his inventions have touched billions yes. upon billions of lives. Yeah. And still do. Yes, and I'm wow. so proud of him. So you had like a very well-connected family. Yes. What did you want to do at that time? I wanted to be a teacher from the time I was in third grade. I saw the nuns. They were very good to us. And just being in charge of a room full of kids and learning stuff. I just wanted to be a teacher. Education in the family, it was kind of there that you should get educated. But I don't remember 
all of my cousins going to college. I wanted to go because I really, like I said, from third grade, I wanted to be a teacher. It was just there. It was in me, and I really would like to do that. Samuel, I had no idea of money, none. I never had a job then. I, I was a babysitter one day and they did a terrible job, so they never hired me again. I mean, my parents paid for everything. I just assumed it was, you know, I don't know. My dad said to me, okay, you can go to college. So I went to DePaul University and that's where I met Frank Donner. Very engrossed in my studies and I had a full load of, of classes. I'm talking to my girlfriends, and I was like about 18, I think. I'm in the hallway of the school, and um, I turned around and looked, and I saw this guy, I remember from a big hallway, and there was a big window with the sun shining through, and this handsome guy is standing there, and I thought, oh, I think I know him. And I said to my friends, you think I should go talk to him? They said, yeah, go ahead. And, hmm, okay, I'm kind of shy. I'm, Hi, don't I know you? Are you Don Donner? Yeah. Dorothy, oh yeah, I kind of remember you from grammar school. It's been a bunch of years, but that's okay. He asked me out. What was your first date? I can't even remember. It couldn't have been very much if we went to the movies or something. Probably. I don't remember. That's a good question. Okay, so some of the details escaped my grandma. So we roped in our second guest to get his take. Frank Donna II, my grandpa. Grandma was talking about how you guys first met and she remembers that first approach, but she doesn't quite remember the first date. So can you, from your perspective, tell me what you remember about the first time uh, you met grandma after grade school? Wherever it was, we were going to uh, DePaul University on the North Side campus, which was up around Lincoln Avenue, was it like this? Dorothy comes up and says, I know you, <laughs> something like that. And I think I blushed from head to toe, lit up like a Christmas tree or a light. What did you respond? Or were you flustered initially? You were like, uh, like who's this pretty lady coming up to exactly. me? Exactly. <laughs> I was quite, <laughs> quite, uh, quite taken aback, I would say. And I think I kind of like out of breath. I'm not sure how to respond. I was dating another lady, and here comes Dorothy Canabe and uh, approaches me and says, yeah, we knew each other in Franklin Park, and your folks knew my folks, and um, we went to grammar school together, and from there on, that's, that's it, I think. We had gone to a, a prom dance. All I can remember is I know that I dressed up in a white coat, black pants, so it's kind of like a semi, you know, tux-up arrangement, and... Um, Grandma was dressed up in a long gown, and we had gone to the place where we danced, had me had a meal and all that, and I brought you back home, like in the wee hours of the morning. After two o'clock in the morning, yeah. So whatever the location was, I know we enjoyed it. You know, like I say, we didn't get back home. I don't remember what mom's parents had said to me about bringing her back home, but I know that we didn't get back until early hours of the morning. Young love was blossoming, but grandma couldn't afford to get completely swept off her feet. There were still classes to attend and midterms to study for. Besides, things were about to change. 
All right, so I'm thinking I want to be a teacher. So I'm in DePaul University where we met. He's going to DePaul. In fact, he finally graduated from there, but it took a while. And at my second year, my father said, you can't go anymore. What do you mean? Like I said, I have no, no knowledge of money. Nobody sat me down and said, you know, this, this. It was just like, okay. Dad says, well, all right, I got a plan for you. He says, you got to get a job. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay for you to go to secretarial school and you can be a secretary and get a job. A secretary? you got to be kidding. I mean, I'm a low-down secretary? Somebody telling me what to do and how to do? Oh, I don't have a choice. So I went to secretarial school and they found jobs for the girls who went there. So my first job, my first job, was in downtown Chicago, which was quite far away from Levi. I was working for three men, and I answered the phone and took, you know, dictation or wrote letters or whatever, and just stayed in the office while the guys were off doing their sales. So I, I wasn't a really good secretary. I didn't really like it. One day, this man came in, Mr. Milsom come, comes in from the big office in Minnesota. He's visiting these guys to see how's everything going. So he's there for about a week, and he says, okay, I want to take the whole office staff out for dinner, and it'll be tomorrow night. So I, I went home that night and told my mom, I won't be coming home for dinner because Mr. Milsom's taking us all out. And she said, oh, okay, fine. The next day I go there, and uh, one by one, my three co-workers bow out. So it's me and Mr. Milsom. We start walking. He says, you know, I really, I don't have a place to stay tonight. And I'm really, can you suggest anything? And I said, oh, my God. Oh, I'm so sorry, Mr. Mizzle. I said, oh, my gosh. You know, we have a, um, a cot or um, a, a sofa bed in the basement. I know my mom would uh, have you come in. So he was trying to pick you up. Uh, yeah, I guess. Now I have to get on the bus and go all the way. And I told you, you want to come with me? Fine. You know, we'll take the bus and I'll take you home with me. Like, I don't think so. So he said, no, that's all right. Goodbye. The next day I got fired. <laughs> really? <laughs> shortly after, right. Did you realize what work. had happened after? Very shortly. I don't know if it was exactly the next day, but it was, it was really close. By that time, I had figured it out. And I said to the three guys that were my, were my call, I said, how could you do that to me? I said, you know, I could be your daughter or your wife or your niece or something. And you knew what was going on and you didn't protect me or help me or anything. So I was ready to get out of there. My grandma's entry into the workforce taught her a cruel lesson. If her colleagues weren't going to give her the respect she deserved, she'd have to stand up and take it, as her busha did years before. But it wasn't easy. Like countless women throughout history, she got trapped in the age-old power game. Mr. Milsom saw her as something to conquer, not as a person deserving of respect. But it seems like the worst part of all of this was recognizing that her co-workers knew and still didn't do anything. It's a story that feels eerily familiar over 70 years later with the Harvey Weinstein trial still fresh in our minds. One of the hardest things for people to wrap their heads around was how. How did so many people know and say nothing? I imagine this was how my grandma felt. But while she lost her job, she refused to feel ashamed. Instead, she moved on with her life. And another big change was heading her way. But for this, we'll need to bring Grandpa Donner back in. 
when I went into service, I had entered at Fort Sheridan, Illinois, first going down to Navy Pier, where it was original induction into the Army, because I was drafted. On Sunday, June 25th, Communist forces attacked the Republic of Korea. Free nations must be on their guard. We know that the cost of freedom is high, but we are determined to preserve our freedom no matter what the cost. I ended up going through basic training, and in the meantime, we're, you know, writing each other. And given that we were writing quite frequently, I think I was kind of uh, a loss. Missing me. I had an opportunity of going home, and I, I think I hitchhiked my way home from yeah. Fort Belvoir to, back to Illinois. Bus and, and hitchhike. We wanted to see if I would date other guys. Now I remember that. And I thought, what? What are you doing? Yeah, as a matter of fact, you dated Don Sopel once, too, because he had asked you for a date. That was after. That's right. I think after I'd already gone Because he was testing me. Why would I be testing you? I don't know, but you were, because Sopel (laughs) told me that. He said, I would kiss anybody. What? I would kiss you for one thing. (laughs) That made me really upset. What? That was when you said, you know, as you were going back home, that you thought, you know, we ought not to get married. Yeah, that could be. I'm not quite sure when I proposed to Grandma to ask her to marry me. And I'm not sure when I gave her an engagement ring. But at some point, she returned that, you know, that ring and said, I don't think... I threw it at you, actually. I don't remember why, but I know I remember throwing it at him, but I also remember where I threw it because I didn't want to lose it. (laughs) We were in the car. I thought, okay, take it back. Pretty well devastated. (laughs) The only lady I ever knew now that I wanted to get married to. There was nobody else in my life. Nor me and mine. I cried all the yeah, way home. Yeah, tears in that. her eyes. I know, she, yeah, that's what she said. And we kept writing. I don't think we ever really fell out of love. At long last, the misery and the bloodshed of the war in Korea has been halted. Let's hope indeed that it's been ended. And so when I got out of uh, service in June, you know, I went back to see Grandma and I just persisted and kept pushing. I uh, had decided that, that we would get married. We picked the day, and that was November 20th. Yeah, the ring came back on, and then I hunted for the uh, final ring, which was the, the wedding ring. And yeah, we've been together ever since. What we did do was settle on going to uh, the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago for One the of first the best night. in Chicago. That began the, the, the honeymoon. Yeah. And then from there we traveled and we had a brown four-door Ford that I had owned. So after spending the night at the Edgewater Beach Hotel and getting up in the morning and having to hunt for some pads that we needed. <laughs> there was blood all over the sheets because we were both virgins. It's true. Uh, we, yeah, we had... Well, uh, I think they kind of expected that. Though. Right. <laughs> As in the honeymoon package. Yeah. <laughs> we ended up, you know, getting on the road and heading down towards Florida. I think we got there at about 7 p.m. And they said, oh, we cancel your reservation. There's something going on in town and uh, all the rooms are full up, so too bad. 
He comes out to the car to tell me. I started crying. I said, here at 7 p.m., we don't know anybody. We're hungry. We're tired. Where are we going to be sleeping, you know? So he starts driving, and we got maybe six blocks, and I look up, and I see room to rent, nightly okay. Got a so really we had nice the, room. The pool or the ocean. It was cheaper than the hotel, and it had a kitchenette. And I thought, oh, I can show my cooking skills now. And it was around Thanksgiving. Yes. And we went to a local store, and I think we got a little turkey breast or something like that, and some stuff, and we made our own food, made sandwiches, took them down to the beach, and God really gave us a wonderful gift. And uh, Grandma dressed in a nice skirt and blouse and all that. We made sandwiches, and we put them on the the top of a dresser or something like that, only to discover that we had a lot of ants. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know that we made any friends there or not. I don't remember I don't any of the people so. that we met. I think we just enjoyed each other's company. Yes. <laughs> Stayed pretty much Getting to know each other. Yeah. We had a little damper on it because Grandma had gotten some sad news that her mother had become ill. Grandma had uh, was stricken with a brain tumor, and so we were married on the 20th. So by the time we were heading home a week later, Grandma's mother was not yet hospitalized, but it wasn't long after that that she was. My grandma lost her mother, and I can't imagine how hard and how scary that would have been. Not having her mom to look to for support and advice probably felt like being tossed into the deep end. But during this time, she also had my grandpa. That itself was lucky. He'd been drafted during the Korean War, which lasted from 1950 to 1953. And in the span of those three years, at least two and a half million people lost their lives, including 36,000 Americans. Like all wars, this one was tragic. But my grandpa was fortunate enough to be stationed at home. So by the time he finished serving, a new life awaited him. One that included my grandma and in due time, little baby Barbara. You and Grandpa had had your honeymoon. Almost immediately, you were pregnant. I was. When did you realize you were pregnant? Every pregnancy I have ever had, I would get very nauseated in the first two weeks. Were you scared or were you excited? Were you, what was going through your head? My, my mom had her children. My grandmother had children. And this is just something that happens. Now I'm beginning to learn about money, which I never knew before. And I thought, oh, I got to count my pennies here now and see if I got enough for this. And this baby's coming. And what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? You know, but it all start working out. You will learn. It's really amazing how you learn things as you need to. <laughs> I wasn't worried. I, I can't remember me being scared to worry about because I love children for one thing. It, it didn't bother me. So she wasn't too worried about the pregnancy. Having a family was just an accepted part of life at the time. Remember, this was the 1950s when the post-World War II baby boom was taking off and the birth rate increased dramatically. On top of that, the World War II generation was one of the most family-oriented generations with 96.4% of women and 94.1% of men getting married. Oh yeah, and that generation wound up having more kids too. A lot of them, my grandparents included. Tell me about the the actual day. The birth? Yeah, the birth. When I went to the hospital to have Barbara, 
it, it was a Catholic hospital and there were nuns there and they were showing me how to breastfeed the baby, which I wasn't really very anxious about and I didn't like it. In fact, I hated it. <laughs> I tried that for a while. I did not like breastfeeding. I did not. It might be the best thing for the babies, but mm, it hurts. I think the nuns showed me how to make formulas and not a problem. Did anyone give you advice on the actual birth? I mean, there was a lot of people that were really helping, which was good because I didn't my, I didn't have my mother really to help me through this, but it was scary. But I felt a weight on my tummy like this, something I said. And I thought, the doctor is leaning on me. It's like his elbow is leaning on me. I said, get off of me. He said, that isn't me, honey. That's your baby. What? I didn't even feel when she came out. They had me knocked out, and there she is on my tummy. And I thought, oh, all right. Now what do I do? <laughs> now I'm a mother. Now I'm a mother. Now what am I going to do? She brought her first child into the world. But what now? Unlike today, information about how to raise children came from mostly doctors, neighbors, family, and friends. There wasn't a centralized place to go like the internet where every answer was just click away. But grandma had a supportive community and learned the do's and don'ts of parenting quickly. This was only the beginning. And I feel like just as you were learning to navigate everything with Barbara, then you're hit with another pregnancy. So were you were you surprised that it came so yes, soon after? I was. I was surprised. We were both surprised. Yeah. Was it like, we're not ready for this, but here it comes? Yeah, basically. Uh, that's kind of funny because it was the Catholic Church that had a lot to do with it. Because at that time, and I don't think they do it anymore, birth control was a sin. And it, it didn't bother me that much, really. I thought, you know, I can take care of this one. Okay, well, I can take care of this one. We still have a baby crib. Barbara's outgrown already. Can put the next baby in this one. It, it just happened. <laughs> then they kept coming. Another one and another one and another one. <laughs> I had 10 kids in 11 years. That's back to back to back to back. That's right. You give birth to a little child and they rely on you for everything until they can finally walk and talk and eat by themselves and then finally grow up and go to school and all that stuff. You're given a big responsibility to care for this. And it just got to be, hey, I've had enough responsibility. Give me a break here. You know? <laughs> My grandma definitely needed a break. 10 kids in 11 years is more than most people can handle. But family planning wasn't quite as easy as it is now. In the 1950s and 60s, there was still a stigma around the use of contraceptives, especially in the Catholic Church. As Grandma said, birth control was considered a sin. Outside of that, it wasn't until 1965 with Griswold versus Connecticut that the Supreme Court ruled that states aren't allowed to ban contraceptives. This ruling gave people the right to privacy for reproductive decisions. So at the time, my grandma had to rely on different methods to prevent pregnancy, and that wasn't particularly effective. So the children, all 10 of them, became her new reality. But aside from all the joys of motherhood, that was just one aspect of her life. She had something else that she was determined to do. 
I had two years of college at DePaul, met grandpa, got married, had our children. But my dream of becoming a teacher was gone. It was like, it wasn't gonna happen again. I kind of, you know, thought, okay, that's fine. I had all my children, but still my dream wasn't gonna happen. But how did you come to terms with all that? I didn't, I just kept it in the back of my head, you know, that might happen. Well, one day we were in Illinois, I'm reading our local newspaper and it said, Benedictine University is granting women or requesting or asking women to come in as students because they want federal funds. And in order to get federal funds in a university, you have to have both men and women students. And I said to that, hey, how about, how about if I go back to school and take a couple of courses? You know, that'd be nice. And I'm talking to the woman there that was taking applications. She said, okay, here's your application. Fill out and brought it back. Oh, she says, you're going to need a bunch of money. You need books. You need travel expenses. you got to drive here and back. Here's a check. <laughs> she gives me a check. Full tuition. Full tuition. <laughs> Full tuition and a little extra. I'm like, okay. <laughs> now I'm dig. enrolled in college. I'm not just going to take a couple of courses. I'm going to go the full board. They were wonderful to me. I cannot tell you. Well, I will tell you how wonderful they were. Now, mind you, in order to keep up my classes and study, I would put the kids to bed and I would wake myself up at about 2 a.m. And I would study for a couple of hours, write my papers, whatever had to be done, and then go back to bed. So now I'm really tired. So I'm studying. <laughs> The religion teacher, who was a priest, said the students around me, don't bother her, let her sleep. <laughs> Honest to God. Okay, so think about this. Think about all the classes you've ever taken and how difficult it may have been to get a passing grade. And I'm not taking about like some GE or an art class. I'm talking about the most brutal physics class you took or that English class where you could never catch a break. Think about that. And then think about my grandma who did it with 10 kids at home. I'll be honest, I don't think I could manage that at all. I can barely manage myself. And here she is waking up at 2 a.m. to study. And a few hours later, her kids are bouncing around ready for breakfast. I can't imagine that. But it's not all that uncommon to be a full-time parent and part-time student. Around 20% of undergraduate students are parents, and over half of them end up dropping out because they don't have childcare or enough funds to continue. And again, my grandma didn't just have one kid. She wasn't just a parent to one kid. She had 10. So imagine how hard that was. But with full tuition paid for and an unshakable determination to become a teacher, not only did Grandma Donner pass her religion class, but she managed to accomplish so much more. In fact, I saw him a year or two later. I, I went to meet one of my teachers there who I became friends with at lunch, and he was sitting there. I said, do you remember me? He said, oh, yeah. <laughs> you were always falling asleep in my class. It was so boring and everything. But he passed me. He said, you write the papers. You make sure you know. And I wish we could get into the full details of the next part of the story. I wish we could hear the rest of what my grandma had to say. I wish you could hear this moment where we both broke down in tears and I put down the microphone and gave my grandma a hug, but we can't. That's where this interview ends, right there. The audio just cut out. I wasn't careful enough. I made a dumb amateur move and forgot to double check the battery on my recorder and that footage was corrupted, unusable, lost. And at first, I just, I didn't believe it. 
I wasn't prepared to believe that this moment, this tender moment, the moment where I felt the closest I've ever felt with my grandma, like I couldn't believe that moment was gone. I, I wouldn't believe it. So I tried to do something. I called up a company that recovers corrupted files. Thank you for calling Unitech. If you know your account manager's extension, you may dial it now. For sales, press 1. For service and technical support, press 2. For store hours and location address. But that, unfortunately, was a dead end. And then I was mad. I was mad at myself. I was mad at the situation. I was angry that I could have been so careless. Like, how could I not take the time to properly check that? Fucking idiot. But then that anger turned to vulnerability. I looked to my parents for emotional support to try to make sense of what happened. So the next day, I went on a walk with my dad through the hills of Topanga Canyon. As you know, I was talking to grandma last night, um, interviewing her about this, her story, but really like the story of the Donners and our family and, and her legacy. Yes. And the last... 30 or so minutes have been corrupted. The, the Zoom recorder died in the middle of recording. And so I was only able to recover six minutes of the 48 minutes that were left. But she told me some stories within those times that are fresh in my memory. So I'd like to share those, or at least how I remember them being told. So we started off that, that part of the story was when she was finishing up her teaching degree. Schools needed government funding and didn't have enough women to receive it. So she got like a full ride scholarship and she was still raising her 10 kids. I believe it was during that time, the whole Donner household had uh, a cough. Mikey had the cough the longest and, and worse, and he was, he was just a baby, and so Grandma called the doctor. The doctor said, bring Mikey in. So she brought him to the doctor, and the doctor said, we're gonna have to keep him here for a few days four weeks. Um, and this was on the north side of Chicago and they were in, in Kekakee, which is, I guess, on the south side, outside of the city. And so it was super far. It was 65 miles to drive to this hospital. So grandma couldn't be there to visit every day. And then she got a call and she said, they put Mike on a, a breathing apparatus because he wasn't able to breathe through the coughing subsequently decided that he wasn't going to make it and pulled the plug. The doctor, the doctor pulled the plug without her permission. And so grandma speeds over to the hospital thinking like Mike is dying. She couldn't allow that to happen. talked about how like as a mother your goal is to protect your children and that's what she was 
laser focused on. And so she gets to the hospital, runs past the nurses, runs past the desk into the room. And there's nurses there and the breathing apparatus is unplugged. And she said, plug that in to the nurses. This is like, no, sorry, the doctor already said, and she's like, plug that in, that is my baby. And she essentially willed Mikey's life back into existence. Mike's going through some medical difficulties right now, pancreatic cancer. And there's this, she like described this helplessness that she feels now. And she feels like a duty as a mother to, to do what she did when he was a baby, to, to, to yell at the doctors to say like, you can fix him. But she doesn't know what to do now. And, and it's hard seeing your children get sick before you do. At this point, she was crying and I gave her a hug. But I think in these tough times, we all like really come together. We are a very connected family. And each of these challenges that are that are put in front of us are opportunities for greater connection. I interviewed my grandmother August 3rd of 2020. It's been over a year since I've had that conversation. And this audio that you've been listening to, it's been tough for me to go through. Especially because since August 3rd of 2020, that little Mikey you heard in the story, my Uncle Mike, he's passed away from pancreatic cancer. And my grandmother is going through her own health issues that come with age. It's been hard on the family. I've been thinking about Mike and my grandmother a lot recently. And I wanted to process all these emotions. One of the only ways I know how. So a few months ago, I finally felt ready to pick up this footage, this footage that is cut too short and decided I'd tell this story. It's an emotional one for me to tell. It's hard, but it's one that I think made me closer to my family history. My uncle Mike, my grandmother, Dorothy. So these files, I won't get them back. But maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that moment of loss is something I can remember. It's because I, I lost just one story. Just one moment. But the thing about people, the people we love, that there are these whole collections of moments and stories, intricate and unique tapestries that are impossible to fully understand or to know completely. But even though you can never know someone 100%, the journey to try is incredible. So that's why I loved this conversation with my grandmother. And that's why 
if you can, take the time to sit down. Be genuinely curious about those you love. Because I'm certain you're going to uncover something beautiful. Happy birthday to you. Right now, you're about to hear the Polish happy birthday song. We say it at every birthday in our family, and it's something that I feel gets me closer to my grandmother and my roots. I'd like to end this episode with a tradition, a song, us Donners have been passing down for generations. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Berkel, Matt Fernandez, Nay B. Cannon, Sophia Donner, Maura Lynch, Zoe Maddox, Ashley Jimenez, Michael Chung, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong. With support from Sarah Hobson, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, Jake Wiley, Ibadat Rai, and Mecca Shelton. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Abigail Azardia, Elise Caldwell, Jake Wiley, Jordan Ortiz, and Sanessa Gisley. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Sohail Amatya, Tiffany Dang, Jonathan Wass, and Diana Marie Kandaza. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.